Amen. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. This is a magnificent and memorable chapter on love. Uh, We're going to pray in a moment uh, that we'll hear it with new ears because uh, it's probably familiar to most in this room. It's one of the most famous chapters of the Bible. Uh, It's been read at many a wedding. I've preached from it at weddings, though that's not the original setting for the text. Uh, We'll come back to that in a moment. And we are looking at love. That's the theme of the chapter. And I confess at the very beginning, I am no expert on love. My son asked to ride to church with me today. And as I was heading out the door, he was heading in to get his shoes. And I was late and in a rush. And uh, he said, I've got to get my shoes. And I said, fine, run. And I got in the car and I said, shut the doors. And I backed out and I pulled down the street. And I got to the top of the street and I said, I'm going to preach 1 Corinthians 13. And I can't do that to his face and have been so unkind and impatient. And uh, frankly, I turned around, not out of love, but knowing I had to preach this text on love to him. And uh, that was going to be too painful to do. Now I do love my son, and he and I have made up. Uh, He he knows, uh, he's forgiven daddy, let's put it that way, very kindly. But I'm not preaching on this subject because I have in any way mastered this, and I know as you sit and listen to these words, you'll feel the same way too. Uh, But Paul has much to say about love. When these first words were written to the Corinthians... They would, it wouldn't have been, as I said, at a wedding. There wouldn't have been a happy couple uh, joyfully smiling at one another, almost giddy with excitement, uh, pronouncing, oh, how much they love one another. Isn't it sweet how much you love me and I love you? And quick, let's say our vows, say I do, before we lose that loving feeling. Now, this is not, this is not a wedding text. Now, it's not wrong to preach it. Or have it read at your wedding, mind you. But that's not how the initial hearers would have heard it. Um, uh, I got it from Scott Lindsay, who I think got it from Dick Lucas. That that the original hearers would have heard this as a mild rebuke, like in The Sound of Music, when Maria arrives at the home for the first time to be introduced as the governess, and the the children treat her horribly as they have done to a string of governesses uh, and they sort of cap it with at the dining room table when they all sit down someone has snuck a pine cone pine cone under her as she sits and she ooh, you know says whoa she got a but but she doesn't show the captain what happened In, instead what does she do oh she tells Uh, the captain and the children, how wonderful it has been to be so well received by them, to be so well loved and accepted, and that they've just been so kind, and and her words drip honey, and, and it begins to melt the heart of all these nasty children and the terrible things they've done to her, and one by one, they begin to weep and peel off and flee the room, right? It's, it's, uh, it's really a kind of hilarious and wonderful scene. Um, this is how I think the Corinthians would have heard 
this chapter on love. Not, well, yeah, let's get after it. I mean, we're pretty good at it. Let's do a little better. But rather, as a description of what they ought to have been, which is so strikingly, strikingly different from what they were in fact. I mean, Paul, as we've looked at 12 chapters, he goes on and on to describe their behavior towards one another as, in fact, unloving. Now he's going to tell them what true love is, and it's going to be a bit painful for them. And I think as, if we hear it in that light, it ought to be a, a rebuke and correction to us. This is a description of what love ought to be like between people and we'll be thinking i hope my how unloving i am how can i be loved like this and how can i begin to love somebody else in this way so let's hear then god's word from first corinthians chapter 13 if i speak in the tongues of men and of angels But have not love. I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Amen. This is God's word. May he bless it to us. Let's look to him in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we do bow before you. The one great lover of us all. And we ask that you would teach us to know ourselves rightly. Teach us to know the love of Christ. Teach, rebuke, correct, and train in righteousness that we might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I began, uh, families are messy. People are messy. Their churches are messy. The Corinthians were messy, and we're messy in our own ways. Uh, And in any close community, love is going to be difficult. And so uh, we need to think about these things. And Paul does it in in, in three main categories. I want to sort of outline and highlight where we're headed. He speaks first about the importance of love in verses 1 to 3. And then he speaks about the actions and activities of love in verses 4 to 7. And then he turns 
to the permanence of love at verse 8 and following. And we're not going to get to all that today. Uh, but what I want to do is I want to think about the importance of love. I want to think about some of the activities of love. And then it certainly asks the question, what is the source of this kind of love? So those three things. In the first place, verses 1 to 3, the importance of love. Paul begins, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong and a clanging symbol. Paul says, look, we can see God use us to do great things. We can have the extraordinary gifts of the Holy Spirit, like tongues or prophecy or words of knowledge, but without love, they're just empty noise. They're just useless sound. Without love, Paul says, I'm not even a Christian, even if God uses me to do great things. We can, verse 2, we can attempt great things for God. We can have the kind of faith, he says, uh, that gets things that seem impossible done. Uh, But without love for my neighbor, the faith even to do miracles, he says, it means nothing. And then uh, verse 3, sometimes he says, you know, people give away their entire fortune. Or they give up even their own life. And it gains nothing if done without love. Perhaps, he says, uh, they do it for vanity. Uh, Or we might say perhaps they do it for vanity. Or they do it for fear of thinking that it will keep them out of being condemned. Or they do it to purchase heaven. I mean, why do people, why would a person, um, verse 3 give away all that they have, and even have their body delivered over to be burned, probably speaking of martyrs here. Why would they do that? They think it gains them, but he says it gains you nothing in the eyes of God. It gains you nothing that matters if you do those things without love. You can be a martyr, but you could just be posing as a hero for others to to idolize you. You can do missions overseas or ministry on a university campus, or you can sacrifice at great cost to yourself, even within your own family. You could adopt an orphan. You could join a big brothers and big sisters program to take on helping those who are needy. You could do all kinds of things. You could open your wallet and write big checks. You could do all of that, Paul says. And without love, it means nothing. You might do it to impress your parents or your friends or to enhance your resume. Um, But not all self-sacrifice is love. Love is self-sacrificial, but not all self-sacrifice is love. Not if it's love for self driving it as opposed to love for others out of love for God. So there's a lot of good you can do in this world. And a lot of good people do, and we've done. A lot of good, a lot of civil good, civic good. Um, But we know people are watching, and it feeds our pride to have done it. And as one pastor put it, the best things done with that motive are but damnable good works. We call it good. Boy Scouts helping elderly ladies across the street. I don't know if that ever happens, but but that's the classic illustration. Um, But it's just a damnable good work if it's done to gain for yourself because you're really serving you and not Jesus. Uh, 
and it isn't true love. You can do anything and everything, even seemingly great things. And if we don't have love, it means nothing. And so Paul says love is the main thing. There's absolutely nothing more important between us than love. The whole weight of the Bible is against us against us if we think that anything else matters more. And I just want you to feel the weight of it. Uh, this isn't just Paul. Jesus in John 13 verses 34 and 35 says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. But it isn't just Jesus. Peter says it. The Apostle Peter, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8, Above all, keep loving one another deeply, because love covers a multitude of sins. And as we read earlier in the service, Paul says in chapter 13, Owe no one anything except to love one another, for the one who loves has fulfilled the law. I mean, we could pile these up. There are all these verses. This is what matters most between people. That we love one another. That we be a loving person. And clearly here, Paul is speaking of love as a way of living, not love as an emotion or feeling. And so it begs this question uh, of all of us that we ought to ask. Is it my goal? If love is this important, is it my goal, is it my highest hope and aspiration to be a good lover of others? And if that's not my goal, why not? If this is the main thing. Some of us aspire to be knowledgeable and we read books and we like to argue things out to come to the truth or at least to win the argument. Some of us want to be powerful or influential and we work hard at our jobs or gaining popularity so that we can do those things. And Paul says, why not aspire above all things To be a good lover of people. This is what we're supposed to be. And we know that people are love hungry. People love to be loved. Who doesn't? And people need to be loved. Of course, uh, the famous atheist, now she's been gone a long time, but Madeline Murray O'Hare. Some of you remember her name. Well, she disappeared and her diaries were found. She was an outspoken antagonist to all things God and Christianity. Well, her diaries were found, and they discovered that she had written in those diaries again and again and again, won't somebody somewhere love me? It's what we long for. And it's what God designed us to receive from others and to give to others. So assuming, assuming as Paul does, that these Corinthians, assuming that we have tasted something of the love of God to us, Paul says, live a life of love, let it dominate your relationships. That's the first thing. Well, everybody's for it, nobody's against it. I mean, who really could be? But what is it? What is it we're talking about when we speak of love? What's genuine love? Paul describes it in action, verses 4 through 7. What is love? Let me point you to seven things he says. It's not the whole list. Um, And in doing so, we'll see just how unloving we are. But Paul begins... Love is long-suffering, or patient is some of your translations. Love, he says, assumes that we will be injured by the object of our love. You'll have to be close enough to others 
for love to require you to suffer long on their behalf. And that's hard. That's hard because intimacy is hard. C.S. Lewis said it this way, to love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, says Lewis, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy, or at least the risk of tragedy, is damnation. The only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers of love is hell. To love is to be vulnerable, he says. It's risky. It could involve tragedy. It it requires us to suffer long. It requires us to be close enough to people who are going to hurt us so that we can be patient with them and suffer long with them. Now look, Richard Pratt, I think, helpfully here says this. Don't, don't, uh, Don't confuse patience with indifference. That's not what we're talking about. Being patient doesn't mean you don't care about what's going on if somebody's hurting you or injuring you. Uh, And what that means is you can be patient with a person who offends you and at the same time be responding to their offense, refusing to ignore it, refusing even to allow it to continue happening. But when it does, you are long-suffering with them. I mean, this is what Paul has been doing throughout this letter in Corinthians. They've got it all wrong. And he's suffering long with them in love, but he also is correcting and rebuking. He's opposing. He's saying you must not be that way. Um, so, uh, so the Bible says, you know, we're going to be brokenhearted. That's part of what it means to love. People will disappoint you over time. Welcome we might say, to life in a family. Life in a family, the closest intimate community there is. Welcome to life in a church. People are going to let you down. People are going to step on your toes. You're going to feel hurt. Love endures. It suffers long on their behalf. And so that's the first thing. The second, Paul says, is what? Go back to the text, verse 4. Love is both patient and Kind. Uh, the root of the verb means useful, and its primary sense is, is inclined to be useful. It's the opposite of passivity. It looks for opportunities to do good. So first, do no harm may be the motto for surgeons, but it's uh, not the call of love outside of the operating room. Love doesn't think it's done anything just by avoiding injury to others. Uh, If that's the case, let's lock ourselves up in a room, right, and avoid everybody else, and then we can say we've loved people. (laughs) 
But that isn't what Paul says. So I can't say to my neighbors, well, look, you just stay over there. I mean, in my heart of hearts, I wouldn't say that loud, but you just stay over there and cut your grass and I'll stay over here and cut my grass. And as long as we're both not too irritated by how we're handling, you know, the outward appearance of our yards, well, then, then we've really satisfied the demands of neighbor love. No, Paul says, love moves towards people to be useful to them. And that, and that means, for a variety of people, I mean, if you've been hurt by somebody and you have to suffer along with them, Paul is saying it's not just that you suffer along with them, but you need to move towards them in a way that would be useful to them. That may be by way of bringing rebuke, because love requires it. But you've got to aim to be useful. You can't just say, live and let live. You know, I'll just avoid you the rest of my life if you'll avoid me the rest of my life. Um, and to men in the church, to husbands especially, I would say, you know, it's one of, the, one of the characteristic faults of Adam towards Eve and a typical characteristic fault of the descendants of Adam uh, that we're too, far too passive as men towards our wives when we ought to be active. We ought to be moving towards them rather than just living and letting live. But Paul goes on in the third place to say love is not only patient, love is kind. But then love, he says, verse 4, does not envy. Uh, Do you feel bad when others succeed? When they receive good, do you think to yourself, I wish that was mine and they didn't have it? Uh, Friends get straight A's and scholarships and you don't. Um, People try... uh, to get into sororities and fraternities and college settings and then they don't get in and they feel like they're more deserving than the other person and they envy the other person. Maybe you despise your family and wish that you could really be part of that other family that looks so good over there. Now the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. But, but we envy, don't we? Husbands wish they had a different spouse. Children wish they had a kinder father. Um, Paul says love doesn't do that. So we're all going to see, I mean, we're all going to see talents and abilities that God has given to others that he has not given to us. Um, how, how do we deal with that and, and be loving? Uh, let me just offer this, that, that we've got to embrace the providence of God in our lives if we're going to learn to be content with what God has brought to us and be content with what he hasn't brought to us. And rejoice with what he has brought to others who rejoice. Because that's what love does. Um, Now, when we're on the flip side of that equation, uh, love is not puffed up. It's not conceited, Paul says. That's the fourth thing he says. Love doesn't envy. And he says uh, it doesn't boast. That's sort of the flip side. It doesn't flaunt what it has. It doesn't throw it in the face of others. It's not, the root root word here is windbag. Love isn't a windbag. Always shooting off its mouth about its others so others will know we're really important or we're better than they are. And of course the way this works is the way I do this all the time. Somebody's telling a great story. And rather than really paying full attention to the story they're telling, I'm thinking about my own story that tops their story just a little bit. So that when they finish speaking, my first words aren't to engage them about their story, is to say, oh yeah, listen to this, you know? Um, 
we're, we're, uh, <laughs> we think more highly of ourselves than we ought, and we don't listen to others the way that we should, and we're windbags. Some of us are. And Paul says love is not that. Um, and then he says in the fifth place, love is not arrogant. We might say, well, that's the heart behind a windbag, right? Uh, unloving conceit in the heart. Uh, and, and here I think it's helpful to recognize that Paul is not saying, therefore, because arrogance is a bad thing, that we should go out and commit ourselves to the task of really hating ourselves and running ourselves down, right? And, and say things like, well, ah, you know, I have no talent, I have uh, no wit, I, you know, I have no beauty, I, I really have nothing to contribute to anybody anywhere, um, you know, that way you avoid being arrogant, right? Well, no, actually, um, <laughs> that would be just as wrong, and it's actually the same fundamental sin as the proud person who goes on and on and on about themselves. As Scott Lindsay says, the arrogant, person, the arrogant person is guilty of discounting the image of God in others, and the person who despises himself is, is guilty of discounting the image of God within himself. Love, rather, welcomes blessing wherever it is found, without envy or conceit. The humble person isn't thinking how great he is or how awful he is. But he is, I think as C.S. Lewis put it, in, or to paraphrase, he's generally not thinking about himself at all. He's probably, if you meet the humble person, he's, he's interested in you. And so uh, Paul says, love is not arrogant. In the sixth place, to continue our list, he says, now look at the language here um, at verse 5, love is not rude. Uh, Love is not rude. Um, Love calls mama when her son is away at college more than the son usually does uh, out of a respect and desire Uh, to love mama Uh, love is polite Uh, you remember mama telling you don't burp at the dinner table and you wondered why that was really so important I mean everybody burps and then then you sat down at a meal at one point with somebody who burped their way through the whole meal and you just couldn't stand to eat your own food that's when you realized why it's important that you don't burp at the dinner table Um, because it's a little thing it's a little thing, maybe that is, or something else to you is a little thing, but it's, it says, your happiness matters to me. I want you to enjoy this meal, and I don't wish to be in the way of that. Love is a little thing even like that. Um, now, we have to say this, um, rude is a cultural thing. What's rude in one culture is different than what's rude in another So Paul is telling you a cultural value here. Um, The heart of this is a a disregard for the customs that have been adopted by a community. It's sort of trampling on the customs and thereby being impolite or disrespectful or discourteous to another person. Um, Love doesn't sort of casually throw out those customs and say, well, you know, that was my parents' generation and we don't even care about those things anymore, you know, and kind of punch them in the nose. Um, we shouldn't do that. Now, now at the same time, we have to say, 
love isn't rude and that's a cultural thing, but if your culture says something is rude that God says isn't rude, well, then you have to go with God and not your culture. Our culture increasingly says it's rude and impolite to talk about religion and politics in public. Well, just take religion for a moment. People think it's rude to talk about Christianity or Jesus or share the gospel with others in public. And they'll perceive that perhaps as being rude. And at that point, we have to say with God that love requires us sensitively, winsomely, in the right setting, of course, at some level. We need to think wisely about these things. You can... You could share the gospel rudely with people. Don't do that. and Don't bruise fruit doing it. Don't trample on people. But we don't just keep our mouths quiet and never say anything about the gospel to people, even if the person we're talking to thinks it's rude. And so, um, so we have to be careful and recognize that the rudeness is a cultural value. And there are different cultures. Uh, finally, we can say this, just to list the seventh thing and, and, and to close, uh, to get to our third point and finish. Love, he says in verse 5, isn't rude, and love does not insist on its own way. So if our attitude is, I'm going to do what I want, whether you like it or not, <laughs> how dare you do the same to me, then we've broken love. So when two lanes you know, merge on a highway and somebody... Uh, Somebody doesn't slow down and and lovingly work their way in, but goes flying past six, seven, eight cars, and you find them on your right front bumper trying to squeeze in ahead of you when you know there's a big gap behind you. Love doesn't ride their tailgate for the next five miles, inches to inches, so that they'll look in their rearview mirror and know that they cut you off and they never should have done that. Some, some drivers have been known to do that kind of thing. Love rather is like this, as somebody illustrates. Two men going opposite directions on a high, narrow mountain pass meet. And the pass is so narrow that there's a rock wall on one side and there's a, a fall to your death on the other. And they, they try, to, try to work first one side, then the other, and they can't get past each other until one guy just lays down and lets the other guy walk right over the top of him and they're both safe. Well, love, Paul says, does not insist on its own way. And love will, will not mind getting walked on if it will benefit the other person for their good. It does not insist on its own way. And that means I've got to die to myself so that I might live for the good of others. I've got to die to insisting on my rights. Um, and so these are the, some of the things that love is in action. Now, if this is what love is, and we've begun to see how we're not good at it, where do we get this kind of love? And we just want to close with this thought. How, how can I become more loving? Well, I've told you this story a number of times, but I'll say it again. Years and years now, more than a decade, I asked Melina, why do you love me? It was late at night, uh, rolled over turned to her said why do you love me and you have to realize that that in my heart was just a mountain of insecurity and what I really I think was hoping to hear was well let me check off your better qualities this is why I love you and my sweet wife and I remember it like it was yesterday because of this my, my wife paused 
thought. And then her reply was, to why do you love me, was mainly because I choose to. Now, now, you're not me, so I realize you can't feel what I felt or even feel what I feel now when I think about that, but you have to recognize how helpful that was for me, how good that was to my soul, that she was saying, I, I love you because I choose to love you. I love you because I'm choosing to love the unlovely Ted. Uh, I'm not keeping my love from you uh, if you don't jump through the right hoops. But I have committed myself to you. I love because I choose to love. And isn't that exactly how God's love works towards us? And it is. Paul says in Romans 5, verses 6 through 8, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For, no one, will, or for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, his love wasn't based on the loveliness of us. His love has been just the opposite. He loved us when we were his enemies, when we were ungodly, when we were sinners, when we were disinterested in him. He loved us and he gave himself for us. He chose to love. That's how he loves. And that's how he calls us to love. And doesn't that just show how unloving we are. Well then let that drive your need of him. Let that drive you to Jesus, the lover of our soul, who loved us and gave himself for us. Let his cross-bearing love for you begin to shape the way you then love other people. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you did not spare your own son, but gave him for us all. And Jesus, we thank you that you laid down your life for the sheep. Thank you for loving us. Forgive us and help us to be forgiving in all the failures of love. And help us to be more loving like you are. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.